My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. If you have heard of ChatGPT, and if you are interested in artificial intelligence at all, then you probably know that this program has passed some tests. It passes more every single day. From just the past week or so, here are a few tests that ChatGPT has passed. It has passed a basic university exam, a basic social sciences essay. It has passed Google's coding jobs test, the entry-level position, which starts at $180,000 a year. It has passed the University of Minnesota's law school entrance test, though the university is quick to note, only just. It has passed Amazon's software position interview test. It has passed something called the Nazi test, which means you can't make it praise Nazis, so that's good. And it has passed the U.S. medical licensing exam. And there's more. I just got bored of looking them up and writing them down because I didn't use AI for this task. Suffice to say, of the many ways in which these programs will impact the world, One of the first ones we're going to have to grapple with is our idea of measuring intelligence and knowledge and qualifications with simple written tests or essays. And that is pretty bad news for a lot of professors at a lot of institutions because that's like most of how they grade. And the AI would also score perfect on the 10% they hand out for attendance. So, what comes next for universities and colleges if assigning an essay or a series of written questions can be gamed by a machine? How are these places trying to find and stop the use of AI programs like ChatGPT? And how futile is that effort in the long run? What does higher education look like if we aim higher than what a machine can do? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jeff Shatton is an associate professor of business administration at Washington and Lee University. He has written extensively about artificial intelligence and also incorporates it into his coursework. Hello, Jeff. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. This is a really complex topic, and we could go down a number of rabbit holes. But I think what's attracted a lot of attention is how radically these programs could change, like, I guess the stereotypical model uh, of teaching and lecturing and essay writing and rinsing and repeating. Um, Do you think that that's a legit concern? The latest iteration is chat uh, GPT, uh, which came out in late November. The biggest implication in higher education is really on student work. Mm -hmm. Um, It's garnered all the attention and deservedly so. 
when I first got interested in the space about 18 months ago, which was the initial, uh, one of the initial products, which was GPT-3, um, I started messing around with it. It was put out by OpenAI, and it could do very limited student work. So I would type in to a college-level essay, and what it would put out was just, you know, uh, high school level, middle school, riddled with errors, repetition. Right. It was hard to even get the user interface to work at times. And and 18 months later? And 18 months later, I will walk you through some examples. Sure. It will blow your mind what this can do. And so some of the attention, a lot of the news articles that have come out just in the last couple of weeks have been uh, ChatGPT passes a law exam at a particular university, or it pass, it gets a C um, in the MBA program at Wharton on an exam. Mm-hmm. For this to be able to get a C at Wharton is already very impressive. Um, but that's just when you take it at first a glance. That's in first gear. So with the way that those tests are all done is that they input the essay question, whether that's going to be an accounting question or whether that's going to be a question on strategy. They input the question as they would give it to a student. They put it into ChatGPT. ChatGPT puts out the result, and then the professor grades it and sees that it's about a C. That's in first gear. Right. Now, what ChatGPT does that is such um, an amazing improvement upon any other AI is that it's a conversation. So you can put in an initial question and you get an output, but then you get to iterate with it as if it is your own, your very own assistant. I want to go through an example. I just put in for something that would be a, a, you know, normal in my class. I asked ChatGPT to do an essay about personality and Elon Musk. This is for an organizational behavior class. And so I can say, you know, write the introduction for a college-level essay about a personality, Elon Musk. And what it pumps out is, I mean, it's not, it's not all that impressive, right? Just like the before examples that I gave, it would effectively get a C in one of my classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you stop there, you can say, oh, well, well, that's it. That's just a C student. But you can iterate with ChatGPT. So then I say, drawing on this, can you write it? in the style of someone who won a Nobel Prize in literature. (laughs) So now it takes the original input. It's not going to get a Nobel Prize. But I'm going to just give you some of the, just the first line that it pumps out. In the realm of business, where numbers and profit reign supreme, the traits of narcissism and charisma are oft coveted by those who seek to lead. Hmm. Now, those two parts, where numbers and profit reign supreme, in the second part, oft coveted by those who seek to lead, that's already above the level of my students. It's creative writing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is. It has taken what was a boring essay, and that line is now, yeah, that 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 can kind of grab you. But it doesn't stop there. If I then ha- ask it to iterate again, and I say, you know, rewrite this paragraph, but use lofty metaphors <laughs> and use language that is more complex, and can you add one piece of wit in the style of Christopher Hitchens? <laughs> and in the cutthroat arena of commerce where the almighty dollar holds sway and the bottom line is king. The allure of narcissism and charismatic leadership is often too great for those who yearn to ascend the throne of corporate dominance. But when these traits are indulged to an excessive degree, as is the case with Elon Musk, the ramifications can be akin to a tempestuous storm that wreaks havoc upon all those in its path. <laughs> a recent analysis of the Tesla CEO's modus operandi lays bare a man beset by a profound and incessant craving for validation and an inclination to place his own interests above the well-being of his companies and stakeholders. It appears that for Musk, the only thing more important than being in charge is being able to tweet about it. 
just a little less flowery. Now you have to iterate it until to di- dial down the lofty rhetoric now. That's fine. So we, so I can, I can then have it do that. So, I mean, there's parts that we can pick apart. Yeah. But, I mean, here's one thing. I mean, I can't write that. Um, my colleagues can't write that. Maybe some in the English department. But I really don't know many people that can do that. Until let's just say, let's just take that last line. Um, it appears that for Musk, the only more important thing than being in charge is being able to tweet about it. Yeah, that's a good line. That's a great line. That's Christopher Hitchens. And I can then ask it to do the last line in the style of Thomas Friedman. And it says, the true test of a leader's effectiveness, however, lies in the ability to balance their own ambition with the needs of the people they lead. In Musk's case, it seems that this equilibrium remains as elusive as one of his reusable rockets. Hmm. Also good. Yeah, very good. You've kind of proven that this thing can be incredibly malleable. It can mimic styles. Um, it can iterate in the direction that you want it to. Yes. How is it being used by students right now? Do we know that it's being used to submit essays? Um, How would you, as a professor, try to determine uh, if your students were handing in chat GPT written essays? Like, what do we know about the pervasiveness of this thing, I guess, you know, just a few months after its release? So there is a study done recently by, I'm not very familiar with this website, by intelligent.com, so take it for what it is, that showed that 30% of college students use ChatGPT for homework and for assignments. Um, And those are the ones that are admitting to it. And that's two months after its release. Right. So at least we have an idea that a lot of students are using it um, for good reason. It's free. You just log on and it produces results that even if you don't know how to use the tool well, are, are are still decent for college purposes. So in terms of what to do about it, as of today, uh, the cops are much better than the robbers. There have been about a dozen AI programs that are designed to catch ChatGPT. And they're to varying degrees, but most of them are over 95% effective. Right now, if a professor did suspect that a student was using it, they would be able to put it into one of these anti-plagiarism softwares um, and most likely catch the student. Uh, But the thing is, I don't think it stays like that. And the reason why is, all right, so we have ChatGPT, and ChatGPT also has leaves breadcrumbs in its writing for these plagiarism softwares to detect. But Google's developing theirs. Uh, China is developing one. Uh, Russia is developing one. I mean, what happens when there's, let's say, 30 of these? Hmm. And many of them are not going to be coded in such a way where they're in- intentionally leaving breadcrumbs um, for these anti-plagiarism softwares to use. So what is it about high school, or in your case, university-level essays that can make them so vulnerable to replication by this AI. And I, you know, I was a newspaper magazine editor. I write scripts every day for this podcast and and other podcasts. Mm -hmm. I have played around with this thing, trying to get it to mimic the stuff that uh, my colleagues would do or that I used to do. And it's off. It it doesn't make sense because it's not being trained on real-world examples happening at this very minute, and it doesn't quite have the style down. But it seems from both what you're saying and from what I've read elsewhere, you know, there's something about the essay style that is, like, perfect for this thing. Well, it's not perfect for anything. I mean, so I haven't talked about the limitations. I asked it to do um, a, a literature review for some organizational behavior questions. And, it, and it, it took me down the road of two different journal articles, and I kept asking it more and more questions about theory development, about statistics, about the research background, and it gave me infinite depth about these articles, except one of the articles doesn't even exist. Huh. Did it make it up or what? Totally made it up. 
Huh. Like absolutely made it up full scratch from nothing. So it, it speaks with the same confidence right now about an article that does exist with an article that doesn't exist. Hmm. So it can be, I mean, it can be really mischievous. I mean, it, I, I did a thing where I said, um, what is five plus five? And ChatGPT says 10. And then I wrote, no, it's eight. And then it said, I'm sorry, I was mistaken. Five plus five equals eight. Okay. I mean, there's all kinds of quirks within this system. But my assumption is that it's two months old. And when you look at the exponential rate of change that has happened with this tool, sure. I mean, these things are going to get figured out. So I'm, I'm less concerned about the quirks of, oh, the people who are freaking out, oh my gosh, it wrote an entire essay about an article that didn't exist. Sure. I mean, it did. And so, yeah, if you're using it today, you certainly need to be very careful that you're talking about things that are real and you need to back it up. So right now, the killer combo is actually humans with AI. You just can't ha- just hand full you know, slots of, in, of assignments over to AI at this point. It has to be integrated with humans. But my, my big question is for students and for the rest of us, I, look, I don't think this is just college. I, mean, I think this is for journalists. Um, I think this is for doctors. This is for geneticists. This is for researchers. Yeah. You know, we're just, you know, we happen to be talking about college. But the question is, what is our role um, once this tool and these tools get so much better than they are today? Because at this rate of change, it's hard to see what our role is in a a lot of these processes. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. So if we're going to take that as a given, that these programs will continue to get better and better and better at evading detection uh, through mm-hmm. the software you mentioned and better at not integrating completely false things, yes. what role should they play in the educational process then? If if this AI is eventually within a year, 18 months or whatever, going to be capable of a fully formed factual college essay, what do we teach in college? How do you How do you change what you do? Yeah, so this is a great question, and it's really the, the central one. So I'm going to go through the options that I think are out there, and I'll give you what my perspective is. These are all being hotly debated um, on campus. The number one option is to just, you know, some people just want to put their head in the sand and pretend that it doesn't exist and hope that it goes away. Um, that is um, unlikely to happen. The second option is to outright ban it. Um, we've already seen this. Uh, there's universities in France there's universities in India who have done outright bans. Um, we've seen this in several uh, major school districts in the United States where they've done outright bans. I, I don't think that works either, simply because, you know, like the war on drugs or the war on obesity or the war on porn or the, whatever you want to put your war on, um, it tends not to work. Right. You know, anytime there's something, a, a technology or, or any other thing that has a huge demand in society, it makes its way through. Right. As soon as the as soon as the use case is is high and the and the cost is low enough, it's going to make its way through. The third option is to just embrace it. And I do know people. Um, I know professors who have embraced it and said, um, "Yeah, we're just going to allow it free form into anything." Where if people want to use, I might even know somebody who uh, basically allows you know full use of AI and then uses AI to grade it. Hmm. My proposal is: I think we have to find a more sensible way. 
and that we're, there's no sense in banning it, but there's also no sense in really embracing it. I think professors have to do the very, very, very hard work, and that is to design courses and design pedagogy around AI, where AI can be used as a something for brainstorming, but not that we can just give it to students to do all of their work for, um, um, for them. So give me an example of what that might look like. So for example, in my class, um, I have them do a full consulting project. So they have to step into local businesses and do a consulting project. What can uh, AI do? I mean, it can help them generate ideas. But at the end of the day, these are local businesses where they can't go to the AI and ask about you know, the hardware store in Lexington and about their particular problems. Mm-hmm. They're actually going to have to go into the hardware store and interview the managers and interview the employees there and develop a plan to, uh, to work with the problems that they're facing. I give a lot of simulations. I have them do in-person negotiations. I have them do TED Talks. Uh, you know, at this point, I have made my courses you know, largely about, uh, I'd say maybe 70%, where you know, AI can help you through strategizing. It can help you as brainstorming, but it's, it's really not going to do the assignments for you. You have a very practical approach, which is cool and very usable in places like real-world business problems or face-to-face negotiations or all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What would your take on incorporating it be for something like history? or social sciences where, you know, by and large, and this is, I'm not saying this is a criticism of it, but by and large, it is, you know, study, learn in depth about a subject, think critically about it, and present an essay or an exam on it. Yeah, I think I think the business subjects are going to be easier to work around the age of AI, full stop. Nonetheless, I think simulations will still play a role. Public speaking, right, where students have to come and present, and you set limits on PowerPoint so that they're not just reading off off of a PowerPoint slide, which I think in general is a weak form of of, of presentation. They too can come up with experiential assignments. So I think there's still going to be options um, for the more liberal arts side of the equation, um, but those professors will naturally need to be um, a little bit more creative. Right. My big concern about this is that for 400 years, we've really had one tool for people to make sense of complexity. And that tool is writing. Mm-hmm. Business plans, relationships, stories, speeches. The mission statement at Washington Lee University says that we teach students to think freely, critically, and humanely. And so much of that happens through writing. And my overarching concern of all of this is that the neural pathways that you and I took you know, that were developed in our uh, trajectory as we aged as adolescents and came to our 20s, a lot of that, all the critical and deep thinking that we did happened through writing. Mm. And I believe that we're going to have to have a, a, you know, a range of tools that we give to students so that they can still get those same, you know, neural developments that you and I had through writing. Um, It's going to take a lot more creativity. I don't think all is lost. I mean, I'm optimistic. I think the future is going to be great um, for colleges and for college students. But it's going to take, you know, kind of a sober awakening um, for professors to rethink what are we in this business for? I mean, we're really not in this business for teaching writing. We're in this business for teaching thinking, right? We're trying to equip students with tools so that they can have a life well-lived, so that they can go have a career that, that's successful for them, so that they can, you know, engage in deep relationships, so they can be members of communities, so they can have civic engagement. And, you know, we have one tool that is potentially under threat. And it's probably just going to be time for us to wake up and develop new tools. That was going to be my next question. And it's one of my last, which is, you're a member of academia. Um, Anybody who's had experience in academia would maybe say that 
it perhaps is not the most welcoming to quick change in the way of doing things? Like, how resistant do you think institutions will be en masse at moving away from writing as the main tool for critical thinking and learning? What have you seen? You mentioned that they're pretty adamantly either against this or sticking their heads in the sands. Like, how do you do that seismic shift? I think it's going to take a long time. Academia is, yeah, I mean, exactly as you said. You know, it is notoriously slow to change. Um, and because these institutions are so decentralized, they have to realize for most, for most universities, professors have their own fiefdom. And so I can come up with that however I want to approach it. It has no bearing on how my colleague approaches it in the office next to me. Mm-hmm. In most universities, professors have what's called academic freedom, and they can effectively teach however they want. Right, the university can ban they can ban ChatGPT. They can allow it, but at the end of the day, it's really going to be up to the professors individually to decide how they're going to teach particular courses. It's going to be up to departments to have these conversations. It's going to be up to entire schools to have education sessions. I just gave a, a session, a large a session at Washington and Lee, where I mean, it was packed as professors are trying to grapple with, you know, what does what does all of this mean? How do we actually think about you know crafting courses that are going to work? Over the you know in the in the decades to come, so yeah, I mean I think I think it'll be slow, but at the end of the day, uh, professors care about teaching, they care about their students, and they'll start seeing the results. Which is I think at a lot of universities, they're going to see the students just aren't doing the work they used to do, mm-hmm. right? You know, think about it this way: a, a lot of technology that ha- that has been a threat to universities has actually not turned out to be a threat. You know, I think of online education has not actually done much to traditional universities. Yeah. I did a survey of my students, you know, how much effort did you put into the online classes versus the in-person classes? And it was, you know, 10 to 1 the effort for the in-person classes. Students just don't tend to do much when it's an online class. Right? They they're lazy, they don't do they don't do their assignments. And so it was it's never we thought, you know, 20 years ago that maybe online education was going to be a, a threat to the traditional um, university system. And it's just turned out to just sit on the periphery. Hmm. Yeah. This is very different, right? This tool allows a lazy student to excel. And so I think it's going to take a, a reorganization. I, I want to show you one more thing because I think it really captures where we are at this moment. You know, right now, these AI tools have a lot of limitations. And as I mentioned earlier, it really takes the integration of humans with AI to produce something stellar. Well, Beethoven produced nine uh, symphonies in his lifetime, and he was about 5% of the way through his 10th when he died. And Beethoven scholars fed the first 5% of the Beethoven's 10th symphony into an AI, and that AI produced hundreds or thousands of different full Beethoven symphonies. Just like the examples that I've given, some of it was junk, but some of it was really good. And so with a combination of Beethoven scholars and AI, they produced Beethoven's 10th symphony. And, And this is what it sounds like. Well, sh- <laughs> yeah, this is this is the world that we're entering into right now. It's human and AI, but that balance is shifting and it's shifting pretty quickly. It's going to be universities. It's going to be everyone 
to shift the way that we start educating and preparing the next generation. Because the world of the next generation is going to be very different than the world of our generation. Last question then. Mm -hmm. That will happen eventually. The world will shift. In the meantime, how messy is it going to get on the actual like ground level of university with, you know, programs innovating faster than programs that can catch them can catch them versus evolution of this technology and students cheating and some students not like it's going to be a disaster for a little bit no oh yeah oh yeah it's going to be a disaster <laughs> yeah yeah the next few years i think are going to be very tough in the space as universities figure out um how they're going to approach it i'm optimistic that in the end that we figure out um kind of collectively about a series of best practices um i've kind of laid out some of what i think that might look like but in the process for, you know, for your average college student that has this tool that they can just use to uh, skirt by their assignments, it's just too easy. And yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll use it until there's either you know, sufficient crackdown, but then there'll be other tools to, you know, skirt that. Um, or when I think ultimately when professors start changing the way that they teach. It'll be fascinating to watch. And I was going to say, I'm glad I'm not in school anymore, but maybe it would have been easier. So <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I think it's exciting. I, I, I find I find change in general to be just very exciting and interesting and fun to be a part of. It's all well and good till they take your job, Jeff. I have tenure. <laughs> <laughs> Can't machines get tenure? <laughs> <laughs> well, one day, one day. Thanks so much for this. All right, thanks a lot. Jeff Shatton of Washington and Lee University. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. A quick note, I am out of here for the next few days. I am trying to navigate whatever hellscape our airports have become for a little vacation. We'll report on that when I get back. Friend of the podcast and someone whose voice you know regularly, if you listen to this show, Donovan Bennett, will be in the host chair for the rest of this week. I've already seen some of the stories he's got planned. I hope you enjoy them. They're really great. If you want to talk to me or Donovan or the rest of the team, you can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can write to us, hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca, and you can call and leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. The Big Story is available in every podcast player, and of course, you can get it on your smart speaker by asking it to play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Enjoy Donovan for the rest of the week. We're off for Family Day here in Ontario next Monday, so I will talk to you on Tuesday, if I'm not still stuck in an airport. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.